recommend. I'll show you one of these. This guy. He's like a little box. Oh, cute. I had so a ring like, light, but it broke. I did too, but it just... it made me just reflect everything mm. but it like diffuses the light so it's not just my pasty ass skin just that's smart acting as a mirror essentially mm. well welcome to mid-wretched friends <laughs> welcome to mid <laughs> hello i hope you enjoy my pasty pallor yes and my pasty pallor as well which it's not usually that pasty but it's february it's so. february in the midwest we haven't mm-hmm. seen the sun in months no and i am my skin, my skin is showing as such. I hope everybody's taking their vitamin D supplements. Seriously. So before we got on, we were talking about the joys of working in uh, public education. Mm. Yeah, working with kids is great right now. It's just so great. <laughs> All of the great social emotional development that kids did during pandemic was just mm-hmm. uh, really set teachers and the education system up for success. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this week alone, I have had to escort, what, three crying students to the social worker. I have had to engage in a couple of conversations about why Black History Month is a positive thing. I have had to work with sixth graders who read as kindergartners. And a whole host of other things. And it has been tough. I did a homicidal ideation consult. Fun. I'm sure that went great. I was literally at the gym. (laughs) In my public gym. And I got a call from one of my coworkers. And I'm like, hold on. Let me find privacy while I'm like sitting in there doing my like routine. (laughs) so yeah that's about how that's how the kids are doing these days pretty much pretty much and they're emboldened i um (laughs) overheard a kid call me a bad bitch the other day i mean you are i mean i'm glad i guess that someone thinks so i wish it wasn't a student Well, so speaking of kids, speaking of kids, speaking of education, I think that this is actually a fun time to kind of remind our listeners before we dive into our case this week of our backgrounds. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Now we have a little bit of a clout in talking about the subject. Yeah. Should we go through our backgrounds a little bit? I mean, let's just go really quick. I am, in fact, a licensed clinical psychologist, and I specialize working with uh, neurodivergent kids and especially teens. Yeah, and that comes with all many, many different uh, presentations. How about you? I have been in education since 2011. I hold two master's degrees, one in a useless art and the other one in education. So I, too, know things. Know things about the youths. I do. I know many things about the youths. Many, many things about the youths. I my focus has been it well in a lot of different places, but mostly has been I've only taught in Title I schools and my focus has largely been in social emotional learning and education and diversity and inclusion. So nice. that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Because you're a bad bitch. I mean, so they say. <laughs> so they say. I bring up our backgrounds because the subject that we're going to be talking about today is the troubled teen industry. Mm. And I think that 
our background, and I'm sure some of our listeners and many, many people's background is going to come into play because many of the defenses that you will hear about the troubled teen industry is, oh, these teens are so out of control, they're so this, that, and the other thing, that these this is the only thing that will work for them. Mm. This is the only way that they'll get through school. This is the only way that they won't end up dead in the street, which is really literally the sales pitch that a lot of parents get to send their kids to these schools. I'm going to have so much to say about this. I figured you would. So... We're going to go ahead. I just want to put that on the shelf for everybody to view and to see. Yes. Yes. You know, like my prized collection of... I mean, I have a Henry Bemis action figure that I <laughs> proudly put up on my shelf. Yeah, there you go. I there guess you go. That's, that's your trophy, right? Hold that on. Put our, our expertise on the shelf, like your Henry Bemis action figure. Mm. I'm sure everybody at home has one of those. They should. Yes. Anyway, so today we are going to start off our story in the small town of Keokuk, Iowa. Mm. In Keokuk sits a small private school that specializes in the treatment and education of at-risk youth. The school is titled Midwest Academy, and Midwest Academy accepts teens with mental health, behavioral, and substance use disorders. The school is home to only about 100 students. But those students also live on the grounds, and they call that school home for as long as they are there, which can be anywhere from a few months to several years until they turn 18, for some of them even afterward. Tuition? $5,000 a month. Whoa. Yeah. When Midwest Academy was built, the town of Keokuk really kind of welcomed it. I don't know if I'm saying the name of the town properly, but this is the best my mouth will allow me to say it. <laughs> I'm going to look it up real quick and see what my mouth wants to do. Yeah, you get your mouth to correct it because I've tried to say it and it's the muscles of my mouth will not allow me to do much more. Oh, goodness. Keokuk is what I would say, too. I'm sure they have like a way that they say it. There's some kind of accented way to say it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, but- it's, it's the Midwest. It's probably something like cook cook <laughs> it's probably cook it's like versailles ohio uh-huh honestly anyway keokukians let us know but midwest academy was really welcomed by the town when it was built because like i said at a tuition of five thousand dollars per month it would bring in a great deal of money to the area. Students from across the country would be referred to the program and would provide a supplement for the local school districts to kind of refer to alongside of their regular education. It could provide a therapeutic option for, you know, if you've worked in education, you know that in addition to regular education classrooms, there are therapeutic and alternative schools. And the School dis- the local school district was hoping, oh, we can have kind of a partnership here. We can refer some of our students there if they are having some of these emotional or behavioral issues. So while that was the initial hope with the local school district, eventually those plans would fall by the wayside because the school would fail to set up any necessary inspections, approvals that are kind of necessary when you have a school, including inspections by the fire department, inspections by the health department. Private schools are not necessarily required to do any of these same inspections. And that's across the board with private schools. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be held to the same, like, safety standards. Like, you're not, you're not exempt from fire codes and things like that. 
You would think, but who's checking your fire safety certificate? Mm. Yeah, that's true. While the school was not formally accredited as a private school, again, technically it didn't really need to be. Again, private schools don't require the same type of accreditation. The Midwest Academy would tell parents that, yes, this is accredited as a preparatory academy. So this would be the same, equal to, or better than a public school diploma. So although the school was not formally accredited, it was always full. There were always kids coming and going. Although there were always kids in the school, you would never quite see them out on the grounds. Now, I assume at that price point, they're pulling people from across the country. a much wider bracket than their local area. Because mm-hmm. yes. this is a very small town. This is it. It's about, what, 20, 30,000 people? Mm. It's right on the Mississippi River. Yeah, it looks like it's probably really pretty. It's kind of like the perfect town. I was looking at it. I was like, oh, this is like the perfect town I want to retire in. Yeah, it looks really, actually really cute. Yeah, they are they are pulling students from across the country. This is, in a way, a magnet school. Mm-hmm. They're catering to primarily upper middle and upper class families who are able to afford the $5,000 a year credit. They are also taking some state-sponsored students. So is it 5000 a year or 5000 a month? Sorry, 5000 a month. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, those are two very different numbers. Incredibly different numbers. Sorry. They are also taking some state-sponsored students. So I forget what we call it here in Illinois, but children in the care of the state. Mm-hmm. We used to call them wards of the state, and then I think they changed mm-hmm. the language around it. Yeah. But... If you drove past the school, students would rarely be seen outside. Since they lived at the school and there were no sports or clubs that really interacted with the town, Midwest Academy kind of faded into the background as far as the citizens of Keokuk were concerned. It's also outside of town. Like, it's not, like, in the downtown area or anything like that. Like, if you look at it on the map, it's, you know, it's like a little bit of a drive outside of town. I think, again, that was pretty intentional. Um, Yeah, I would imagine so. Although also that's kind of how the schools in my town were. So Mm. it doesn't surprise me that wasn't kind of like, I think it was probably intentional, but I also don't think that it really kind of sticks its thumb out that much. Mm. So like I said, most of the citizens of Keokuk, once the school was built, it was kind of up and running. They didn't really think about it all that much. It's not like the kids were coming into town. It's not like they were really interacting with the other public schools in sports, part-time jobs, community endeavors, anything like that. Mm. So in many ways, it was kind of forgotten about. That is until January 28th, 2016, when the FBI, the Iowa Department of Public Safety, and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation act on the 80 reports of child abuse, child neglect, and sexual exploitation that they had received over the last three years. Oh, God. The FBI and the other departments raided the school and eventually removed the approximately 100 children and teens that were in residence there. An investigation of the school would reveal small rooms, six foot by eight foot cement cells with no amenities, only bright overhead lights and a mattress on the floor. When they interviewed students about the dwellings in the school, the students would reveal that these were the isolation rooms for what they called out-of-school suspension, or OSS, Hmm. where students would be kept for multiple days at a time, forced to sit in stress positions. 
Students shared that these OSS rooms would be used as punishment for anything from fighting to running away. Many reported that the room was where they spent their first 24 hours at the school. Ugh. One student, when interviewed, shared their memory of a 12-year-old with an intellectual developmental delay who was placed in the room for crying too much. Mm. As they continued their investigation, other students would report that they were subject to extreme daily exercises while being forced to exercise until they vomited and given starvation rations. One student with a chronic illness was not excused from this portion of the program and ended up so ill that he had to be hospitalized. Follow-up with his mother found that she eventually pulled him from the program and attempted to retaliate against the school, but they said that she had essentially assigned away her rights to her child. Jeez. Students reported that in terms of meals and rations, they were given only a sandwich, a box of raisins, and half of an orange per meal, totaling only about 800 calories per day. These reports were supported by the fact that many children lost more than 20 pounds in their months at the school. That's horrifying. Medical and psychiatric needs were ignored, and that includes ignoring of self-injurious behaviors, not receiving medical treatment, and being told that self-injurious behaviors were their own choice, so they deal with the consequences. I have so many questions. Students with diagnosed mental health conditions were denied access to a psychiatrist. When medical care was provided, it was hardly private. One student shared during her investigation that they recalled hearing a gynecologist who had been called in to complete medical evaluation. She overheard the gynecologist commenting on the appearance of another girl's genitals and shaming her for not being a virgin. Ah. The same girl also reported being denied treatment for a yeast infection and not having adequate showering or hygiene opportunities, which was what caused the yeast infection. All outside communication by every single student was monitored. They were not allowed to call home or write home without their messages being overheard or read. It's horrifying. While all of this treatment had been going on for years, many had attempted to blow the whistle by calling DHS, which was the Department of Health and Human Services, essentially the Child Protection Services in Iowa. Mm -hmm. They attempted to tell their parents, tell health professionals, and nothing had ever happened. However, in many of the cases reported this in the student's own history, many times when these things did finally get to DHS, when they did finally get to police or in some ways investigated, the student's mental health, trauma, and behavior was used against them. Mm. Remember, these are all children that have already been diagnosed with behavioral substance abuse or some kind of mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. Many of them who had experienced trauma, many of them who had been rejected by family members. Mm -hmm. So when there was an investigation, the staff at the school would accuse the students of lying, being manipulative, just because they didn't want to be at the school. They said, oh, well, they lied to their parents. This is a documented history. They make up all of these things. You can't trust any of the things that these children say. And the investigations would be closed or not founded. Until one staff member finally did listen to a student. This student that we're going to talk about a little bit later, kind of our primary subject, I guess, the student would remain anonymous and would only be known as KS in all court records and documentation. 
K.S. disclosed to a Knight staff member that the director of the academy, named Benjamin Train, had raped her between seven and ten times. She recalled incidents of grooming, incidents of manipulation, and incidences of exploitation. The staff member would immediately call DHS, and that call is what would trigger the investigations in the raid by the FBI, the Department of Public Safety, and the Division of Criminal Investigation, and launch an investigation into fraud, child abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect that would go on for years. Mm. So that's the background of our story. (laughs) I have so many questions already. And tell me some of your questions. Well, so, I mean, at that price point... Like, somebody cares enough to pay that kind of money for this, you know, corrective education for their child. So my first question is, what was the bill of goods sold to these parents, these caregivers, whoever is, you know, sending their children and paying for this? Like, what are they being told is happening at the school? And I think that's a good kind of way to launch into actually the history of the troubled teen industry. Or kind of what we call TTI now. Well, what a fortuitous question then. (laughs) It was a very fortuitous question. Mm. Because this all, everything that happens relies on that bill of goods, that Mm -hmm. desperation from parents. Yeah. I mean, I guess the point that I'm making with my question is like, you have to believe Mm -hmm. that, you know, to pay something like that, also to like, just let your child go somewhere there's a tremendous amount of trust that you have to bestow to an organization to turn your your struggling child over to them and so it's not as though these kids are being put you know they're not being arrested they're not right yeah like somebody's paying for this so somebody Mm -hmm. thinks that they're getting something you know really i would imagine at that price point you're thinking it's probably going to be pretty remarkable right Mm mm-hmm well, I think we also, and I didn't, I didn't dig into this, this too much in my notes, and who knows how much of this I'll keep. I think it's also important to think about the culture of the people that can't afford this. Oh, that's what I was going to bring up too. Yeah. yeah. That boarding schools are not odd. Mm-hmm. Residential treatment is not out of the question. I've recommended residential treatment in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we'll talk about how do you vet a residential treatment center at the end. Um, but appropriate residential treatment for some of these families. So it's not out of the question to say, I can't handle my kid here, take them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know what to do right now. You know, there's a lot of motivations. I'm scared for them. I'm embarrassed by them. They're disrupting everyone else in the family. They're putting their younger siblings in danger. They're putting their self in danger for whether it's substance abuse or engaging in, you know, dangerous behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, I have seen and worked with a lot of kids that do engage in some of this dangerous behavior. Same, yeah. Whether it's drugs, whether it's just risky things. Yeah, and I've had a lot of conversations with parents over the years that kind of like the, the core byline of it has been, I just don't know how to do this. Yeah. Right? Like... You have a a child and you expect to, you know, be able to meet their needs and to be able to take care of them and raise them and and cultivate their character and and whatever. But not everybody gets a kid for whom that is an easy path to tread. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I know it's not out of the question to say I don't know how to do or deal with this like extraordinary circumstance. I've had a lot of parents kind of in that desperation say, "I this is not what I signed up for." Mm-hmm. And as much as you know, we have the empathy and we have that conversation of you sign up for chaos and uncertainty and you sign up for the kid that you get and sometimes that's really really hard yes <laughs> yes <laughs> we, as a yes. medical kiddo mom mm-hmm. you felt a side of this yeah yeah I mean I definitely know obviously in a much different because my my child has um a pretty profound like physical issues but just that feeling of like you're staring down like a diagnosis or all these things mm-hmm. and you just have you question so much about yourself and like your own ability to not only to like provide the daily care that's necessary for a kid with you know a, a greater set of needs but also just your ability to cope with it mm-hmm. you know and and I've certainly like been able to you know, kind of compartmentalize that, like, I am, you know, somebody that's, like, extremely well-equipped to do this, and that that is an extraordinary privilege that I hold, and, Mm -hmm. but it's not something that I think, like, I think if you had to rise to it, you do, but I think rising to it looks different for different people, Yeah, and sometimes rising to it means I need a lot of help. Yeah. Yeah. And the best thing you can do for your kid is ask for help. And mm-hmm. you have to be able to trust who you're asking. And isn't that what we tell parents all the time is ask mm-hmm. for help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having done a lot of the research on this and having read survivor stories and everything, some of them will say that that is kind of what happened to their families, that, that they were taken advantage of. Their parents mm-hmm. genuinely genuinely wanted to help them and didn't know how, and they were taken advantage of in that desperation. And some of them have said, my parents just didn't want me to be their problem anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to recognize that both of those and everything in between can exist. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I do kind of want to talk about kind of how did the troubled teen industry or TTI kind of develop and develop this really predatory stance. Mm -hmm. So this industry, I think that it goes back longer than people believe or people see. TTI is very secretive. They discourage families from speaking out about the programs to not release information about clinical or academic programming. Mm -hmm. I imagine there, there are some... NDAs that parents have to sign when they sign up for it because I'm going to tell you right fucking now nothing that I read about in terms of their treatment in terms of their curriculum are evidence-based or even logic-based and that it is very rare because of the secrecy because of the families I think whether it's an NDA or simply shame and not wanting to admit what happened Mm -hmm. they do not come forward and they do not share their stories The case that I chose, the case of KS, I chose this case because we actually have some court documents and legal findings that I can specifically say, this is what the court and the legal system agrees happened. Mm. On that quick, quick note about kind of sources here, 
I pulled a lot of from local reporting from the Des Moines Register and newspapers.com, a lot of court filings. I love filings. the Des Moines Register. They're good. They do such a dang good job. They are detail-oriented. They follow a story from beginning mm. to end. Immaculate. I love Des them. Des Moines Register, you are just fucking doing it. You're the mid-wretched newspaper of the year. We love you. You really are. We should start giving around giving away reward awards. <laughs> I can't talk today. We totally should. <laughs> also, there have been a lot of recent documentaries out there over the past. I'd say not more than five years. Paris Hilton's documentary is great. I have never been a Paris Hilton fan in my life, but really watching that documentary was so freaking eye opening. Yeah, and really gave me a completely different perspective on, I think, the way that she has very intentionally crafted herself. Yeah, and I think it also provides just a really important vantage point that, like, this kind of stuff is going to touch families at many, many, many different ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. And that somebody like Paris Hilton is not exempt from, like, mistreatment at places like this, right? Yeah, like, this is interestingly one of those things where socioeconomic status can kind of put you in a worse position maybe Mm. there is one documentary about the elan school by vice and several more independent documentaries about some of the schools that we're going to talk about but i also relied quite a bit on personal stories that were shared on a variety of blogs including breaking code silence unsilenced and wwasp survivors Really, if you just kind of want to feel broken for the day, <laughs> like I broke you when I was researching my next case. <laughs> I mean, some of us feel broken every day. It's the seasonal depression kicking in. Girl, I had a cold ass conversation with my therapist about that the other day. What up, Midwest? It's time for months of unhappiness. What up? No sunlight, no movement, no going outside. (laughs) Seriously. No fresh vegetables. (laughs) Yeah, if it wasn't for my clinically prescribed uppers, I'd be in a sorry state of affairs. (sighs) Anyway. Anyway. Um, So there are a lot of people on a lot of those blogs that talk about their stories that really are heartbreaking I will say there are some people that still defend these schools and, you know, their voice is just as valid, not the ones who are faking it. And I think the ones who are faking it are pretty easily sussed out. But some of them will say there were certain teachers that they found supportive, which I think is perfectly very possible. I think that a lot of young teachers and a lot of young people kind of get involved in these schools not knowing what they signed up for. I have a lot to say about that. (laughs) A lot of programs take advantage of young clinicians, young teachers, just young people that just say, I want to help. And I hear this place helps. Mm -hmm. And they try to. And I think some of those teachers realize what's going on and get the fuck out. And some of them get brainwashed by the system. Mm. All right. Sources out of the way. Caveats out of the way. Let's talk about the history of TTI. Because I really want people to understand kind of what this actually is and how it came about. First off, troubled teen schools have been around for decades. I'm going to go back and call it at least a century. Hmm. The Illinois State Training School opened just at the turn of the 20th century. It was opened as a school for, quote, wayward girls. (laughs) 
who were sent there for by family for anything from arguing to smoking to running away to getting pregnant out of wedlock anything you saw a cute boy on a motorcycle illinois state training school for you mm. that's probably why i would have been sent there yeah you would have been you would have been there. <laughs> mm-hmm. sadly kind of outside of all of kind of the jokes and everything many of the babies that bo- were born to the pregnant girls were immediately taken from the mothers given up for adoption against their will and some were rumored to have been buried on the, the on grounds cemetery uh. in unmarked graves God, that's so sad. So the I, I grew up near a, a one of these schools for wayward girls, and it was like specifically, I think, marketed towards um, pregnant teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me kind of wonder more about that place. What happened Probably gonna to have to do some babies? googling lately. Later, I mean, yeah. oh God, if you ever have an opportunity to Google the, uh, I believe. It was a case of a essentially Irish girl, school for wayward girls. The horrors that occurred there. Mm. Tomb or Taum. Um, but it, those are very, very interesting stories. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to put that in my tab. They actually, the Catholic Church recently released an apology about it. Oh, interesting. They found just baby after baby in the wells. What? Yeah. Oh, that's horrifying. I'll find it. I'll send you. There's a red-handed episode about it. Anyway. So over the next decades, there would be a lot of schools that would kind of take this model and just, like, narrow it down and kind of put it into a little corporate bubble. Mm-hmm. There was the Devereux School or the Boys Town School in Omaha, Nebraska, um, which would all experience similar reports of abuse and neglect of the children there. There was the the orthogenic school in Chicago, Illinois, who I know a couple of people who trained there. But <laughs> that school had similar reports of abuse and neglect and still occasionally gets one. Dang. But as an industry, that industry really developed in the 1970s with organizations such as Synanon and the Elan School. Mm. These schools glommed on to two emerging trends, Alcoholics Anonymous and behaviorism. Now, regarding the, how they glommed on to behaviorism, I am no fan of behaviorism, but I can tell you there's a very stark difference between what Skinner and Thorndike promoted and what Synanon and later schools would kind of pick up on and turn into a curriculum. Mm-hmm. Five minutes of reading Thorndike or Seligman could have prevented this entire TTI industry because a lot of the behaviorism that they glommed onto was punishment, shame, make them feel bad, and then they won't want to do it again. Thorndike proved to us that punishment doesn't work. Punishment is actually the worst thing that you can do to try to change a behavior. Mm. And many, many people have proved that going forward. Behind the Bastards, and there are several other podcasts that do really great coverage of Synanon and the Elan School. Um, there's a great documentary called The Last Stop that interviews mm. a lot of survivors from the Elan School I would highly recommend. Interesting. Um, but the importance of these schools, because I won't go into their history, it's too much, is that while these treatment programs and boarding schools existed before, 
in my mind, it was these two models that really kind of created this as an industry. Mm. Synanon was founded in the 1950s, but became really more well-known in the 1970s, primarily as an adult treatment, um, but branched out into children. The Elan School was founded in the 1970s. And what made them different was in one way that marketing aspect that you had kind of like asked about. They marketed themselves to parents and to medical professionals as we are the cure for your acting out child. They played on the fears of desperate parents, promising that if they hand over their children to their trusted treatment program, their children would be healed of addiction, promiscuity, and any other undesirable behavior. Basically, what do you not like about your kid? Give them to us. Mm. Is your kid drinking? We'll stop it. We're going to use an Alcoholics Anonymous model, which is, it's not the Alcoholics Anonymous model. Um <laughs> Yeah, if your kid's acting out, we'll take them, and we will beat it out of them. Mm. They focused on what they called accountability, but to what most outsiders is going to feel more like compliance and submission models. Mm -hmm. You comply to the rules, you submit to what we say, and you will be fine. Otherwise, you will be locked away, isolated, shamed, humiliated, and possibly beaten. They were not shy about using kidnapping, literal kidnapping, as a, as a form of getting the children to the school. Oh, God. They used what they called, quote, transporters or outside agencies to be employed um, by the school. So this was like a third-party agency, which essentially gave them the legal standing to say, we didn't kidnap the kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they would get parents to sign off on the use of these transporter agencies to take the children in the middle of the night or another vulnerable position against their will. Yeah, that's really frightening. I mean, you know, it really makes me want to look into some of these other sources because I was just like skimming the Google reviews for the one that I grew up very near. Mm -hmm. And uh, the accusations just in their Google reviews are terrifying. So this is... (laughs) This is slightly an aside. We, uh, as a field in psychology, we really struggle to know how to deal with Google reviews mm-hmm. because we are we are legally not allowed to respond to them. Or I shouldn't say legally. We're ethically not allowed to respond to them. Mm. So ethically, we have to leave them up no matter how true or untrue things are. But I don't know. It becomes like a big mess. That said, Mm -hmm. I don't think that necessarily it's a bad thing to be able to have those reviews and be able to look through them because there are a lot of reviews on there of some of these places that are absolutely atrocious. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, some of the, you know, some of these things that you see are like, these are really big things to say on a Google review. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was just looking at one that was like a... um, an accusation of a rape, mm-hmm. you yep. know, uh, by a staff member. So, you know, that is obviously like a very serious accusation to make. Yeah. Our worst Google review from my current job is that we have a, our out-of-pocket fee is too high. Mm. Well, it is. It is. <laughs> it's insane. It is. We just partnered with a uh, with an educational advocacy group, so now we get to do some pro bono stuff, which warms oh, my heart. Good. Yeah. 
anyway, that's what makes me feel good about my job. <laughs> that mean, we don't have any uh, accusations quite that bad. Yeah, that's good. But yeah, if you look at the reviews for a lot of these places, you'll see a lot of similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, the WWASPS survivors group i don't know if you call yourselves w wasps or wasps but that's what i was saying in my head Mm. i couldn't find any videos of anybody actually saying it so anyway it is rough um now another kind of important factor here is that these quote-unquote schools or treatment programs they don't even pretend to have certified or licensed therapists or teachers at them because, again, many of them evolved from Synanon, which evolved from the Alcoholics Anonymous model. Mm. It was AA that put forth that the best people to guide those suffering through their addiction was others who had suffered through it as well. Now, there is complete validity to that. Mm-hmm. AA and similar support groups, I'm not fully an AA stan. It helps a lot of people, but there are also a lot of other great models. Group therapy, support groups, I, you're not going to find a rational clinician that says that that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. However, that is not a substitute for overall treatment. And when you are signing your child's life away for yeah. whether it's a week, a month, a year, you want to know that the people taking care of them are licensed and certified to do that. Yeah. And I mean, I really just like I keep coming back to that price point, too. Like when you're paying a price like that, I think that you're also paying for Mm -hmm. the presumption of expertise, right? Yes. Yes. None of the senior staff at Midwest Academy had any kind of license either for teaching or for clinical work or anything whatsoever. I know that because some of these wonderful survivors groups have done a lot of great investigation. Yeah. Now, one thing that I really want to hone in on here, because I think that this is also a big, big and important difference, a very specific treatment protocol created by Synanon, but adopted by just about every other one of these TTI groups in some way, shape or form was called the game. Have Ah. you heard of have you heard of the game at all? I've not heard mysteries of the game the in game. relation to the pickup artist. Yeah. <laughs> I just listened to a great episode of If Books Could Kill about the that the game, but uh, I this think is it's a, a very different game. Different that you're game talking about. Somehow more toxic. Well, okay. It's a really good episode, though. I loved it so much. So good. Anyway, I really want to talk about for. Synanon and TTI, what is the game? They've probably called it different things and different protocols for the game. But I'm going to just explain it from this quote, explain it with this quote from Breaking Code Silence. Quote, three times per week, there were mandatory group therapy sessions. During these sessions, one member of the program would stand and divulge personal information about themselves. They would talk about their insecurities, experiences, trauma, etc. Instead of responding with empathy or validation, the group would respond by verbally attacking the speaker by interrupting and jeering cruel commentary, sometimes yelling or screaming at the speaker, attempting to find the most vulnerable parts of the speaker and tearing them down. If group members refused to participate, they would face punishment. 
Well, this treatment originally took the form of verbal and emotional abuse. As the program continued to grow, physical abuse became condoned as well. This form of manipulation would become known as the game. Outside of, quote, game sessions, Synodon members were required to be polite and civil with each other. However, inside these sessions, they were encouraged to use profane language and be as critical as possible of their fellow, of their friends and fellow community members. So the game essentially required one group member to stand in the middle of a group, spill their guts out, be vulnerable, share their trauma, share their insecurities, share everything that you would share with your closest trusted friend or therapist, and then be shamed, humiliated, ridiculed, and beaten for it. TTI members recounted this type of therapy. Some even some recalled even higher escalation. In the Vice documentary, one survivor describes a group leader reenacting a girl's rape, while other group uh, members yelled things like "whore" and "slut" at her. Why? What's the logic here? The logic eventually broke down to: this is what you did. This is your choice. I was going to get into it a little bit later, but essentially it came down to you chose to be raped, face the consequences of it. Wow. You deserve to be called a whore and a slut. Deal with it. Stop wow. hiding from what you did. The trauma that you experienced is your problem. You're hiding from it, and if you stop hiding from it and face the jeering and the ridicule, you'll heal. That's disgusting. As a psychologist, I'm saying that, and I'm like, none of this is true. Yeah, no, this that's is the really most horrifying. disgusting thing, the most disgusting ideology that I think anybody can ever have. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think like before I asked the question, like, is this supposed to be some sort of like really bastardized form of like exposure therapy or something like that? You know, mm-hmm. in a way, it's exposure therapy. In a way, it's I'm just gonna. Fuck my notes at this point. (laughs) I kind of figured this would happen at this one. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's funny because it's almost like a really bastardized version of uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about acceptance and commitment therapy, I'm going to scroll down to my notes because I'm terrible explaining things. Acceptance and commitment therapy is really kind of about accepting situations as they are. If you've heard the term radical acceptance. It's really about that. Evaluating your thoughts and your values. Look at a situation. How can you act in accordance with your values in the situation Mm -hmm. that you're in? And so like, okay, so for example, uh, I'll give you one example that I work on with my therapist. I have a lot of body image issues. I have a lot of, well, we can call it or not call it body dysmorphia. (laughs) I, in my heart and in my mind, I believe that all bodies are unique and beautiful, should be respected and taken care of no matter their appearance or health status. Mm-hmm. Health at every size, anti-ableism, fuck beauty standards, all of that stuff. I believe that for everyone except my broken ass self. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I like, don't you know that I'm uniquely and singularly <laughs> fucked up though <laughs> like it only applies to me really don't you know that everybody else is wonderful and beautiful except for me because I have a chronic illness and I'm pudgy 
Don't you know that that excuses me from having value? Mm-hmm. Obviously. Obviously. And so, again, based on kind of this modality of act, non-bastardized version of act, we would have mm-hmm. conversations about, well, do you actually believe that? Let's really, let, let's flesh out your real value system. Mm-hmm. And, okay, what's stopping that? from applying it to yourself how do you Mm -hmm. take steps to integrate those values into your view of self you know how can you view yourself along the same lines as your own values yeah i do a very similar thing my therapist is very much aligned with this too we talk Mm -hmm. a lot about my um extremely toxic perfectionism (laughs) where you know we'll go through a billion situations and uh you know she'll always throw something out like you know if and she often uses uh, you as one of the examples, she'll often say like, "If Mick came to you and said this, <laughs> would you think that she was like a dumb, crazy bitch?" And of course, I'm gonna say no. But you know, again, like, don't you know that I am like you? Un- this only like uniquely applies to me because I'm the exception to the grace that I give to everybody else, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is like this kind of bastardized like version of. Well, if you really had those values, then you wouldn't have gotten yourself raped. Mm-hmm. You know, you chose to get raped. One, um, one survivor recalls an experience where she was in one of these game sessions, and she was told, "Well, you got raped. You deserved that. You made the choice to get raped." And she says, "Well, I was held at gunpoint." And they say, well, you could have died. You could have made the choice to die, but instead you chose to get raped, and therefore it's what you deserve. Whose brain even works that way? Like, to even hit that, like, I just, I'm well, speechless. Here's the thing. There, there there are plenty of people whose cognitive distortions work that way. Sure. And then your job as a therapist who has been trained and has empathy mm-hmm. and who knows what you're doing says, so you chose to survive. Mm-hmm. You chose to be strong and you chose to survive. Right. But I mean, and, it does like as soon as I said that, I realized like, well, you know, we have to look at who they have staffing these places and mm-hmm. and why they're putting people in the positions they're putting people in. Right. Yeah, exactly. There there is an intentional choice to put untrained and unfamiliar people in these positions of power. One of the things that we'll talk about is what they ended up actually doing in some of these TTI schools, and especially those um, sponsored by, I I had mentioned WWASP before. It stands for the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. Mm. A lot of what they would do was they had this kind of level system, which you see quite a lot in therapeutic and alternative schools of like, oh, good behavior gets you points. And if you get so many points, you move up a level. And Mm -hmm. it's fucking toxic, but so many therapeutic schools use it. Mm -hmm. But they would, if you managed to get to level three or four, which were the highest levels you could get to, then you would now be in charge of the game. You would now be in charge of doing these therapeutic games. So you're essentially pitting teenagers against teenagers, mm-hmm. which is never a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So Synanon officially closed their doors in the US in the 1990s. I believe they're still active in Germany. Hmm. 
The Elan schools officially shut their doors in 2011. Most of this was due to allegations of abuse, including sexual abuse and exploitation. Unfortunately, they had already left their mark on the industry. Based on deception of parents, abuse of vulnerable young people, and people not knowing better. People Mm. not knowing to check the credentials of the therapists at the school. People not knowing to check, what is your alphabet soup? I want to fucking know that before my kid is in your hands. Mm-hmm. Like, I often make fun of people, like, that talk about, like, the alphabet soup at the end of their name because I think it's kind of silly. Yeah. Uh. yeah. But, I mean, I use it when I'm, like, emailing certain parents. Certainly. 100%. Because I need them to know, like, Yeah. And I do not get offended when people say, what is your license? What are your credentials? How many years have mm-hmm. you been doing this? It's like, exactly. okay, you care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All it's right. not a threat. If you have those credentials, it's not a threat to be asked for them, right? Exactly, exactly. What we now call the troubled teen industry is an industry estimated to be worth $23 billion. It consists of group homes, camps and wilderness programs, treatment centers, and correctional facilities. Some of these include the infamous Turnabout Ranch in Utah, Teen Discovery in Costa Rica, and Second Chances also in Utah. There's a lot in Utah. I have a feeling Utah is an honorary member of the Midwest for how fucked up it is. (laughs) Can we start doing episodes in Utah, please? Listeners, if you want to hear some fucked up cases in Utah... Just let us know if we're allowed to include it. Yeah, we're here for it. I mean, Alyssa, I know you listen. Alyssa, (laughs) send us a suggestion. Yes, Alyssa, hook us up. It also has like a tremendous entertainment value. I mean, you see like those like late 90s episodes of Maury Povich where, you know, like teens are brought on. True. Yeah. Dr. Phil was doing it until just a few years ago and only Mm -hmm. because uh, what's her name? Bad baby? Is that mm. the one or am I thinking of somebody else? No, you're thinking about Okay, mm, cool. Was it Bad Baby, Bad Barbie? Bad Barbie. The Cashman side girl. Mm. I hate to refer to her as that because I don't want to like demote her to that being like the definition of her life because she has now it's like released baby. videos. Bad baby, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Cause she has now like released videos about how traumatizing it was. Because Mm -hmm. she, I believe it was Turnabout Ranch that Dr. Phil sent her to. Oh. Yeah. Dr. Phil's ending his show. I saw that today. Hallelujah. Um, Anyway, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of TTI programs across the U.S. serving, it's estimated, between 120 and 200,000 teens each year. Mm. And according to the American Bar Association in a 2008 report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, TTI is associated with literally thousands of cases of abuse and neglect reported each year. The APA has, so the American Psychological Association has advised against these programs due to their lack of scientific backing and honestly, Mm. absolute lack of rationale. Yeah. And I mean, lack of like any real accreditation or outside um, accountability. Yes. Please. Um, I want to take a minute at the end to say if you are a parent and you are struggling with your kid, what can you actually do that's safe? Mm -hmm. Because I'm obviously like in a lot of therapist groups, Mm. message boards, Reddits, Facebook, whatever. And I still, I literally a couple of weeks ago saw somebody recommend Turnabout Ranch. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. 
Um, I think it's interesting because we know that much of the reason that individuals and teens end up with these quote unquote acting out behaviors and substance abuse and criminal activity is because of things like mental health trauma and other environmental factors that provide exposure and opportunity to participate in. You can't participate in selling drugs if there's not an economy for drugs where you are. Mm -hmm. So ripping them from that environment, putting them in another traumatizing environment, and then putting them right back in the trauma is not going to help literally anything. You have not given these kids coping skills. You have not given these kids true trauma therapy. No, I mean, really what, what you risk creating is kids that come out even angrier than they came in. Mm hmm And that's really kind of what a lot of this turns into. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about kind of what the programming looked like. There's not a ton of information out there on specific programming or curricula because families are are actively discouraged from sharing any information. Um, These quote-unquote seminars are hosted by something called Premier Education, which is a branch um, associated with Midwest Academy and WWASP. Mm. Academic programming is... I'm just, I'm just going to let you kind of go off on this. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> um, according to Survivor Stories, it's basically non-existent. The information I'm about to talk about comes primarily from a pamphlet that someone was able to post online from a school in St. George County, Utah, that is associated with Midwest Academy under the uh, WWASP umbrella. So you start your, your day with physical education, which is described by survivors as grueling and militaristic training drills that go on for hours and mm. are done under a calorie deficit diet that I described earlier. Mm. The remainder of the day is taken up by hours of online learning programs. Online learning is described as, quote, self-paced and state-of-the-art with interactive features like graphs, illustrations, and other multimedia. Students are discouraged from any interaction with lower-level students and have no communication privileges. You have to sit upright facing your computer at all times, feet uncrossed and flat on the ground. Students were called being punished if they were caught looking at the clock, glancing in their peers' computers, or engaging in conversation. One student stated that the goal of each day was to simply avoid out-of-school suspension. Although parents were told that high school dipl- that the diploma they would earn would be equivalent to a high school diploma, and some were told that it was tied to the local school district, essentially what happens when you graduate is you get a certificate um, of homeschooling completion. Uh... Which matters if you want to apply to college, military, or any other programs. Although these institutions don't necessarily deny homeschooling diplomas or certificates, they will look into it. Uh, What's your thoughts on that as an education plan? I mean, we have seen in the past few years how problematic that model when translated to pandemic education has mm-hmm. ended up being for our kids. Mm-hmm. So just on like a, a very basic level, like we know that that type of learning environment does not work for the the vast majority of kids that like entirely self-paced, unguided e-learning situation, like for very few kids, does that work out? I mean, to I, be honest, like for very few kids, does that work out? There's a couple of alternative schools in Chicago that use that model. I've never talked to a kid that enjoyed it. 
Every mm-hmm. kid I've ever worked with that went to one of those alternative schools had said, I just need to get the fuck out of here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you know you're not getting a particularly enriching experience first. But they have state-of-the-art multimedia with graphs. Like graphs. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. Um the other thing that is, I think is really striking about that is, you know, when we talk about like trauma-informed educational practices, we talk a lot about like diffusing the desire or the impulse that a lot of kids with a, a high number of like adverse childhood experiences have mm-hmm. to want to engage in a power battle with you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, because these kids often end up feeling so powerless in their home circumstances or what have you that there's a, an urge to exert power wherever they can get it. And yeah. the, the school setting is, is someplace that they can try, right? Mm-hmm. And so you learn very quickly how to kind of appropriately choose your battles with kids that are dealing with situations like that. And how to set and, boundaries so that it's not a battle. Mm-hmm, exactly. And how to have those conversations where you're – you know, de-escalating and, and doing things in a way that like helps them to re-regulate because they're obviously dysregulated. So when you take traumatized children and you lay physical expectations on them that are harsher than any physical expectation you would lay on yourself, mm-hmm. like slumping in your chair when you're at your computer or glancing at the clock or, you know, um, glancing down and checking your texts while you're you know, at your desk or what have you. Those are unreasonable standards for any of us to deal with on a daily basis as like well-adjusted professional adults. So you want to lay those expectations on a dysregulated, traumatized child and expect that to work out. Mm -hmm. It will not. Like every time it will not, right? So you're, you're constantly engaging in a power struggle where nobody can win. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think everybody about, loses. And I think about like, how are you setting these kids up for success? Mm-hmm. Like, in what way are you giving them the tools to be successful? Like I said, at kind of mm-hmm. the top of the episode, I work with, I specialize in neurodiversity. And I am more than willing to bet there's a good percentage of these kids that have autism, that have ADHD, that have pathological demand avoidance, rejection sensitivity. Holy shit. And the sensory needs that come with that, the mm-hmm. fidgeting and the regulation that come with that. Like, I can't sit at my desk for more than 10 minutes without at least having a fidget in my hand, without at least rolling in my chair, swaying in my chair, mm-hmm. something like that. Why are you forcing this child to fail? Yeah. You're forcing them to fail. Yeah, it is. It's forced failure and... I think it's, you know, you, when you really care about taking care of these kids, (laughs) I think what you end up learning is that there are times where, when, and I think so much of it boils down to that, like, that sense of powerlessness and lack of control in their own lives. Like, there are really healthy and appropriate times to give kids that sense of power, that sense of authority over their domain like one of my tricks with kids that I know have that kind of struggle is I'll let them sit in my chair mm-hmm. and that very often is like a really simple move that takes exactly no work on my part 
but that makes a kid feel like I'm in the big chair, right? Like, um, it doesn't have to be, and it, it doesn't hurt me any. It does not damage the, the child's respect for me or their ability to learn from me or engage with me in any real way, right? Mm-hmm. What it does is that it gives them a small sense of, of mastery over a very small domain, which they desperately need to feel like they matter. Yeah. And it gives them a sense of, oh, I do have some control in this situation, mm-hmm. which... I know that there is, there's a school of thought that says, no, kids and teenagers, they don't have control. You need to tell them that they don't have control. Well, what does that look like when that teenager turns 18? I mean, it's our job to teach them how to have control. Exactly, exactly. This is the hill I will die on as far as like cell phones in school, which is like Mm -hmm. the, the thing that we're like constantly frustrated about. And it is frustrating. But my stance is always going to be that it's on us to teach them responsible use. Mm-hmm. I would be infuriated if my employer took my cell phone when I walked in the door. Oh, right? I would, I'd be pissed. Not even because I'm on it, just because I'm like, that's fucking my shit. It's a violation. Yeah. But they would be completely in the right to, uh, you know, bring up disciplinary action if every time they see me and I'm supposed to be working, I'm sitting on my phone. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have to teach kids the time and the place and you know the appropriate way to again like I think it, it so much of it just boils down to, to regulation and you think about how often these kids are like dysregulated at a default and then in a situation like this or a circumstance like this forces them into like a deeper dysregulation that they have no idea how to get themselves out of because we're you're not forcing, teaching them how to you're forcing them into a shutdown mode mm-hmm. like you are giving them the option of fight or shut down mm-hmm. fight or submit Mm-hmm. And those are not good options for anybody. And a lot of times, clinically, we'll talk about collaborative problem solving. And I firmly believe in teaching this kids and teaching this to kids when they're young and continuing it at, throughout their life of like, you know, you can start, you know, when kids are like, I don't want to go to bed. You can't make me go to bed. And you're like, okay, well, here, here are the things we need to accomplish to get you in bed by eight o'clock. What order do you want to do them in? Mm. You know, you need to brush your teeth. You need to put on your pajamas. You know, I'm going to give you the control. They're controlled choices. You give kids control of their environment as is developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. Telling an, a 17-year-old you have no control, fuck you, get over it. There is nothing developmentally appropriate about that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So that leads into a little bit about the clinical programming at uh, these seminars, curriculum. So I'm skipping a bunch just for the sake of time. There was a a pamphlet I was going to talk about where uh, WWASP answers some kind of frequently asked questions um, where they say 90 plus percent of our students do not go to the program willingly. Therefore, student escorts will tra- or therefore teen escorts will transport students to the program. Uh, really, literally talking about the kidnapping services that they have for your children. Um, they get accosted during the night, or in another compromised position, they are abducted and dragged into a car by two large adults, given little to no information about what's happening happening to them until they are at the school. Students are given very little downtime. Um, they are literally and absolutely banned from speaking to each other 
for the first level. In some instances, level one and level two, you are not allowed to speak to other children or other teens at the school. That's so awful. What is appropriate about that? Exactly nothing. Exactly nothing. And they claim that that is to prevent students from sharing negative information or telling war stories. Mm. They claim to have a mentoring program where they say, quote, we liken it to a friendly Casper the Ghost mentor type staff member. (laughs) What even does that mean? That you have somebody following you all the time that you don't see. Creepy. Um... The pamphlet that I was able to find online claimed that uh, families are told that schools are fully accredited as a college preparatory academy, which is a lie. Yeah. And that they have a 98.7% parent satisfaction rate. Mm. Which, by the way, no legitimate school has. No, that's not a real thing. (laughs) It's not a real thing. What, What satisfaction rate do you think most public schools have? I mean... 60% maybe. Okay. I'd take that. I'd say at best 80%. Mm -hmm. I live in Chicago where we have like this really everything is hyper competitive. I have eighth graders with severe anxiety disorders because they had to take high school entrance exams, Mm -hmm. which they take more seriously than I took my GREs. So (laughs) I've watched many a baby work through that yeah mm-hmm. um so clinical programming begins at the the wwasp i'm just gonna say w wasps because yeah. i don't yeah parents and children are both required to attend but it appears from my research that they are separated somebody can correct me if that is not correct um seminars can go on for hours running late into the night and picking up again early in the morning the goal of these extended seminars is sleep deprivation They are intentionally created to run to midnight or later and pick up at 6 a.m. And, uh, yeah, you are not allowed breaks. You are not allowed anything other than the scheduled bathroom breaks and rest breaks. If you have a medical condition, you must provide documentation from your doctor and get pre-approval to take additional bathroom breaks. I mean, that is, that's schools in general. I mean, for the, by and large really oh yeah my husband's sure. school mm-hmm. they are not allowed to deny bathroom breaks really no we uh i mean that's that's a very progressive move and i think that's like what most of us believe should be the case but that is not in my experience that is nowhere near a norm like that is nowhere near normative at all no it's true like i know plenty of kids that have 504 plans because of like a kidney disorder or some sort of like GI disorder that gives them unlimited unquestioned bathroom breaks but you have to go through the hoops to get a 504 to to guarantee that no my husband's school you have you are not allowed to deny a bathroom break if you do Mm -hmm. even if you're just like can you finish this worksheet and then you'll go in your bathroom break oh oh they get mad yeah that's my signature move is can you wait a little bit and mm-hmm. they almost always say yes. And if they can't, it's like, well, you're telling me that it's it's turtle heading. You got to go. Go. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, parents are told, quote, if you don't 100 percent devote yourself to this program, your child will your children will be dead, insane or jailed. 
So Fantastic. you asked, what kind of parents are doing this? Mm-hmm. The parents are told, your kid's going to die if mm-hmm. you don't sign them over to this. It's a threat. I mean, it's, yeah, it's parents already under duress being threatened. Yeah. I I don't want to go too much into, like, what the kid's document like what the kids kind of training looks like because it looks like there's a parent training session and a kid training session Mm -hmm. um like i said the training sessions look really like a bastardized version of acceptance and commitment therapy Mm -hmm. where it is you are responsible for every choice you've ever made and if you don't correct your choices then you will be in jail or you're gonna die even if you were raped even if you were traumatized that was a choice that you made if you got beaten Mm -hmm. by your you know parent or your teacher you chose to stay there Mm -hmm. it's really fucking twisted meanwhile there's like all of these really fucking third grade illustrations in the workbooks that are (laughs) sending these messages it's this like really high level shit with this really childish illustrations. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, you've never met a teenager in your life, have you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at the very end of this workbook, somebody uploaded online. <laughs> there's this whole workbook about you need to make the right choices and you need to talk to your magical child. The child that made all of these choices that put you in the position that you were in. It honestly kinds kind of sounds like really shitty jordan peterson like shittier jordan peterson Mm. um if you can think about that those exercises where you have to like write out your values and then define every single word in your values what does believe mean what does i Mm. mean what does faith mean what Mm -hmm. does good mean anyway it's dumb Anyway, and then the last page is, quote, in all caps, happiness is not a result. Happiness is a choice. Choose to be happy all the time. Yippee! What? With a drawing of a puppy. <laughs> and that's, that's the end of this workbook that they worked on for this seminar. That's wild. Anyway, so you go through that seminar. Your parents go home. You go to this prison school. You get to the school. Some survivors reported that they were immediately put in isolation or OSS. So those six foot by eight foot cells for 24 hours. That was their first introduction to the school. Others reported that they were forced to strip down their clothes and change in front of an adult staff or multiple staff members, even changing their underwear into their new uniform Mm -hmm. with no privacy. Some were told that they had to hold stress positions for extended periods of time. There is a point system at the school. So at Midwest Academy, you start at at level one. You have no privileges. You cannot speak. You get plain food with no condiments. You cannot ask for anything or express any needs on level one. You're not allowed to express your needs. How are you supposed to get them met? You you don't have any. Mm. You're fed. You have scheduled bathroom breaks, and you have a cot to sleep on. What other needs do you have? I mean, that's fair, I guess. I'm out. <laughs> As a specialist in social-emotional learning, what other <laughs> needs could a teenager possibly have? I mean, right off the bat, I would just think, like, sometimes I don't go to the bathroom on a time schedule. 
You know, I, I and have, that's that's still a physiological need at the very least, right? Dude, some days I pee every twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. I can't. <laughs> but one might have a need for human contact. For no, 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 that is not a need. That is a choice for assistance with understanding something. A choice for... you are choosing mm-hmm. to not understand. What if? I mean, you're on your period. Like, can you get products? Well, yes, on scheduled breaks. Mm, perfect. This is definitely how my uterus goes. Everybody's uterus is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You have the same flow as I do. <laughs> obviously. Obviously. <laughs> when you get to level two, you get condiments. So you get a little salt, mm. a little ketchup. Uh, sometimes you get slightly more food. You are allowed to speak when you have permission. When you reach level three, you are allowed to speak. You can have supervised phone calls home. And you are put in charge of supervising lower level teens on punishment. So you get to talk to your parents when you get to level three. So that takes anywhere from what I was reading, anywhere from six to eight weeks if you were on your best behavior to get to level three. Wow. That's really upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was trying to figure out, I was like... I know the therapeutic school that I worked at in the past, you could reach level three by the end of the week if you tried really hard. Mm-hmm. Again, I still don't believe in level systems. I still don't believe in point systems. But this, based on what kids were saying and based on what survivors shared online, it would take several weeks to get to level three. Mm. Um, and until then, you are not allowed to call home. Even if it's an emergency, if it's an emergency, a staff member will call home. But once you get there, you are now in charge of supervising level one and two students on punishment. So you get to watch them in isolation. Hmm. We'll talk about isolation in a bit. At level four, you can get visits home and you get increasing privileges, basically taking on the role of a co-counselor. So you get to run the game. Fantastic. So, you know, you can have just 15-year-olds running the game. Your group These, does this system apply like all the way down to the the very youngest ones? So we're talking about like ten or eleven year olds that aren't allowed to call their mom. Uh, yes, but it's unlikely that they would ever actually get there. Mm. The youngest kid I saw was eleven at this school. I see. Okay. Yeah. There, there's some math you can do if you really want to. According to survivors, you could earn twelve to twenty two points a day. But if you did something as something as simple as turning to look at the clock could lose you up to 25 points. The highest level consequence was if you got in a fight, you would have to do a thousand word essay and you would go into OSS. So OSS, what is OSS? OSS was out of school suspension. What does out of school suspension mean in your school? You're at home. You go home. You're at home mm-hmm. for the day. Before I hate where like psychology is like, hey, stop doing this. And Alfie Cohn is sitting there writing book after book after book of like, mm-hmm. hey, stop doing this. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the part that's hard is that out of school suspensions, students are always entitled to due process under the law, right? Yes. So, and due process extends to out of school suspensions and expulsion hearings. Um, so you do have to be able to substantiate that mm-hmm. the student's presence in school is either a threat to other kids or staff physically, or it's a significant disruption to the learning environment. However, mm-hmm. you can define a significant disruption in a pretty loose way. I mean, I got an email today. My my building has uh, probably 700 kids in it. We've currently got 
probably eight kids on OSS right now. Wow. Yeah. And we are at an A school. So. Well, I am willing to bet that your out of school suspension does not look like it did at Midwest Academy. No, I'm sure it doesn't. So at Midwest Academy, what out of school suspension included was you would be placed in a six foot by eight foot concrete cell with no furniture. You would be kept in there for a minimum of 24 hours, watched by a CCTV the entire time. There were timed breaks for restrooms. A mattress would be brought in for rest. Occasionally, there was a chair. Many students reported being required to hold stress positions, so sitting with their back straight against the wall with their arms out in front of them Mm. for several hours at a time. Some students reported that they would turn up the audio and play music or motivational motivational tapes over the speakers. Students reported that the out-of-school suspension could last several days at a time. Essentially, what we're talking about is solitary isolation and torture. Yeah. Yeah. And when you add in the motivational speeches, the loud music, all of that stuff, as well as the stress positions, you're talking literal torture. It's a sensory nightmare. One girl reported that she attempted suicide while while in isolation by tying a sock around her neck. Um, An article by the Portland Press Herald covered this case and described the cells as, quote, dark cell-like punishment rooms often filled with sounds of screaming and motivational recordings piped in through the speakers. A 17-year-old survivor who was interviewed in the media said, quote, you spend your time pounding your head against the wall. You can't sleep because there's a lot of noise. A lot of girls like to scream in there. You basically look forward to your bathroom breaks and those moments when you can get out of your box. The same girl described that she ended up cutting herself with a bottle cap and begging for emergency responders that would place her elsewhere. Mm. Self-mutilation was common in isolation cells, and reports to psychiatric hospitals for medical treatment were rare and seemed randomly applied. Calls to child services and calls for medical care and hospitalizations were similarly random and only made at various times. Mm. In 2009, five former students would file a federal lawsuit claiming sexual abuse and misconduct that that occurred either after the isolation rooms or in other private consultation meetings that were presented as therapy meetings. This 2009 lawsuit was dismissed on jurisdictional grounds, but the judge was careful to say that the dismissal had nothing to do with the facts of the case or the evidence of the case, only that he did not have jurisdiction to make a judgment in it. He encouraged and convenient. Yeah. He encouraged them and said, you need to file this in another in the correct jurisdiction and please file and please follow through with it. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if they tried to file it statewide and it needed to be filed with the county. I don't know what happened. But looking at the comments made by the judge, he really said, you have a case and I want you to pursue it. Wow. Like I said, there were some teachers and young staff that really did care. These staff took the jobs with the intention of doing good, I truly believe, thinking that they could help these kids. Many of the survivors did name teachers and staff that helped them. And these were likely the teachers and the staff that were young. Like I said, they took the jobs thinking they could make a difference. They think they could mm-hmm. do good. I'm sure you've seen a hundred of them in your school. Oh, my gosh. A bit, yeah. 
You want to talk about what's the biggest profession that's going to burn you out and jade you? It's probably Mm -hmm. teaching. It is. It is. And, you know, we really, like, we put a lot on the backs of young people. And, like, you'll notice often, like, if you look at uh, breakdowns for, like, school composition, uh, you will very, very, very often see that the lowest performing schools have the youngest staffs. I can I can 100% see that. And again, not for lack of intention and not for lack of care. No, it's just mm-hmm. that experience accounts for a lot. That's all. Well, and very often, like I, I work with a lot of teenagers and they're the ones that say like, yeah, my young teachers are the only ones that care. Like my older teachers, they're about to retire. They don't care. They don't put in any effort. Mm-hmm. And it really is a matter of balance and a matter of experience and knowing what to do and how to deal with situations. Mm-hmm. While maintaining some kind of care in the profession, which can be hard sometimes. Yeah. (sighs) So one of those teachers, or I shouldn't say teachers, one of those staff members was Cheyenne Jared. She was just 20 years old when she was hired as a night supervisor at Midwest Academy. And one evening in December of 2015, a student who is identified in court documents as K.S., came to her to report that she had been sexually assaulted by the program director, Benjamin Train. Cheyenne Jared quickly called DHS to report the crime in as much detail as she could based on what KS had told her. Shortly after mentioning that she had made the call to her supervisors and her superiors, Cheyenne was fired. A little bit more than a month after the call was made, the FBI, the Iowa Departments of Public Safety and Criminal Investigation, descended upon the school. With evidence from years of accusations, years of calls to DHS, years of reports of abuse, exploitation, and neglect, students were immediately removed from the school, hopefully to safer places. Most of them went home. However, many of them ended up in hospitals and were transferred to other residential treatment facilities. Mm -hmm. The investigation by the FBI into Benjamin Train would begin immediately. And the infighting at Midwest Academy would also start pretty quickly. Train would immediately jet off to his home state of Idaho, and the school would be left abandoned. Train claimed that he nor the school did not own the building, and he could not return to the premise because the lease had been handed over to the owner because Midwest Academy was behind on its rent to the owner of the facility, Midwest Twister. Big reveal, Midwest Twister is a, is the same fucking owners. So where's all this tuition money going, you guys, if we're not being able to pay our rent? To WWASB. Mm. It is all literally, I tracked down the documents, I tracked down all of the owners of all of these places. Mm. Midwest Academy, Midwest Twister, and WWASP are all affiliated with the same small group of people. Wow. Benjamin Train had attempted to disjoint Midwest Academy from WWASP because only a few months prior there had been a large investigation into a WWASP school in Costa Rica. Mm that had been shut down for child exploitation, neglect, and similar abuse charges. So 
Benjamin Train was actively trying to separate them from WWASP. However, they were all under the same umbrella of owners of education and regulatory committees. Um, Benjamin Train tried to say, oh, I can't get into the school. They fired me. The school has been abandoned. Midwest Twister owns this. There's no way to get any documents from the school. Several major court filings would come from this investigation that would focus on some specific claims. The claims related specifically to Midwest Academy and Benjamin Train as the school director were false imprisonment, intentional infliction of emotional distress, assault, battery, negligence, fraud, negligent representation, educational malpractice, and violation of Iowa Consumer Fraud Act. That violation of Iowa Consumer Fraud Act related specifically to the marketing and the information that they would send to parents. Mm. Essentially, what this came down to was it was a fucking MLM. Yeah. Parents would be recruited by the school and then would be told, we will give you a tuition stipend or a cut in tuition payment if you promoted our school on your website. You open up your Instagram, you start an influencer page, and you promote our school and we will give you a cut on your child's tuition which spoke to a lot of these more struggling parents, a lot of kind of these more desperate parents who couldn't necessarily afford the $5,000 a month, Mm -hmm. but were like, well, you told me my kid's going to die. Yes. So I have to make this work. Mm -hmm. That's my only option is to make this work. Literally. they Midwest Academy and Benjamin Train knew exactly what they were doing when they fucking like created this entire structure for the school and this training program. Oh, yeah. Another one of the major court filings would be from Cheyenne Jared, who would receive uh, $750,000 in wrongful termination as she filed that she was terminated for being a whistleblower and fucking Mm. good for her. Yeah, good for her. But most importantly, and kind of what brings us back around to the case of KS, I'm sorry, this has been a really roundabout way of talking about this case, but this is what I do. I apologize greatly. (laughs) The FBI and the other investigative committees would look into fraudulent claims regarding the school's education, the dual enrollment relationship that had been cut off many, many years later. Students would file a lawsuit against Midwest Academy. They cited beatings, sexual abuse, uh, sex between staff and students, sex among students, forced silence, ignored pleas for medical attention. Basically, everything that what we have already talked about feels kind of like, yeah, you are not providing the medical care. You're not meeting Mm -hmm. their educational needs. You are abusing these children. In November 2017, in that, that was a class action lawsuit. So Mm -hmm. a group of students had filed that lawsuit. In November of 2017, the judge awarded a group of students and their families a default judgment after Midwest Academy failed to respond or show up to court. So basically, Midwest Academy, WWASP, just completely did not show up. And the judge was like, okay, then I guess uh, you're guilty of that, and here's your money, students. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the case of KS and the sexual abuse that she had reported, she did not get 
off as easily when it came to court treatment. Court filings in the case of K.S. and her accusations of sexual abuse and exploitation got really ugly. The court proceedings were ugly. The community response was ugly. There are still people defending Benjamin Train and attacking K.S. I was going to say, when you Google him, some of the first stuff you see is like hardcore defenders of his actions or his of him. Like they'll say he's been scapegoated. Yeah. And do I think he's been scapegoated? I mean, he became the face of the abuse. Mm-hmm. Does that make him innocent? No. No. And I think it's upsetting because those are the first things that come up about him. Rather than the fact that he has three times been found guilty of this. Yeah. So... Like I said, there are many people online, I think there's even a GoFundMe, accusing KS of making false accusations of sexual abuse in the past toward her adoptive parents and saying that essentially the fact that she made false accusations then means that she made false accusations now. However, the judge has ruled that there is no evidence that the, false, that the accusations against her adoptive parents were false. Mm. The judge in that case said... Her reports are consistent, her reports are detailed, and her reports have a timeline. The defense given by the adoptive parents provides none of that. Because she was not filing a lawsuit against the adoptive parents, the standard of reasonable doubt, the standard Mm -hmm. of reasonable doubt does not apply. Accusations against her adoptive parents of sexual abuse and neglect were only used and only brought up by Benjamin Train. Mm. He was the one that brought those up. He was the one that introduced those in court. So she did not have to prove them in the same way. However, a judge, even looking at the accusations, even looking at the information provided, had said, she sounds credible. We can't do it. Yeah. The judge said, this is credible. Her accusations in the past were credible. She actually would not report on the stand she would make a victim impact statement that was read by an advocate um Mm. later was she still a minor when it was uh in court i believe so and i believe that that was the reason i mean obviously we don't know because she was kept completely anonymous yeah so that gives me reason to believe that she was a minor at the time of the offense and at the time Mm -hmm. of the trials ks and other girls testimony was included What KS and at least two other girls who were students at Midwest Academy described was grooming behavior that began with what they describe as small touches and comments that grew into sexually explicit comments and conversations. They described individual and group counseling sessions with other female students that included, quote, body image therapy where they were asked to undress in front of a mirror and to describe and discuss their body. Oh, no thanks. Benjamin Train was supposed to be their therapist during these sessions. Other students would testify that they also had to participate in these body positivity classes. KS stated that Benjamin Train forced her into sex acts in order to, quote, level up into the program, so get into those higher levels so that she could talk to family members, so that she could speak in general. And she stated that Train made himself her counselor and the point of contact for the family. 
so he inserted himself into every level of her treatment that he could intervene and that he could be the one to intercept any communication that she would even try to make. Some of the things that the girls describe in terms of these body image therapy classes was that he would take them to shopping malls and ask them to buy bras and lingerie and underwear. Wow. KS was the only girl to receive an individual lawsuit when it came to this. Hmm. For whatever reason, in terms of what the evidence said and what the FBI and the criminal investigations were able to find, KS was the only one that they were able to find enough to kind of move forward with a specific investigation and specific Hmm. charges against Benjamin Train. So when they shut down the school... Benjamin Train was essentially completely forced out. He was forced back to Idaho where he lived previously. Hmm. When the FBI and the other investigative agencies explored the school, they found pictures of sleeping girls in Benjamin Train's phone that was left oh, in the school. Oh, God. And they found semen stains in front of his CCTV monitor in his office. Oh, no, no, no. That's really, really horrifying. Like, that's very damning. Benjamin Train's defense basically stated that K.S. was a liar, that she had accused others of sexual abuse, and that must mean that all of her accusations were false, and she had no credibility. That's so wrong. We don't totally have time to go into all of her, all of his appeals, but so Benjamin Train would be convicted for the first time on December in December 2017 where he was found guilty by a jury of his peers and was ordered to serve five years for sexual exploitation by a counselor or therapist I do believe that if you're a counselor or therapist and you sexually exploit a client you deserve extra time Mm -hmm. he was also sentenced to two years for sexual assault with intent to make with intent to commit sexual abuse and two years for child endangerment. All of these were to be served consecutively. Mm, okay. Meaning so what's that, that nine years total? Yep. Meaning that he would receive nine years in prison and 10 years supervised release. Okay. Registration as a sex offender and DNA profiling for basically the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. The judge in the case made the following statement regarding his sentencing. Because obviously he is going to play the card of, I'm a member of the community. I'm a mm-hmm. teacher. I am respected. Look at all of these people who are defending me. Because there was a big community of people out there defending him, saying, oh, he saved my child. He did this, blah, blah, blah. I want to point out that none of the people that I ever saw on any of the blogs, any of the message posters ever denied that there was abuse. Mm-hmm. They simply said, well, those kids deserved it. Wow. So they were, I mean, they in a way, they were in on the trick, right? Fully. They were brainwashed is, mm-hmm. is kind of the way that I make sense of it. Yeah. There were people who claim that they went to the school and claim that, well, this was the only way that I ever would have changed. This is the only way that I could have ever gotten through everything. Mm-hmm. And you'll even see this on some of the documentaries about the Elan school. You know, I don't want to say that their experience or whatever was invalid, but it's hard for me to see anything but abuse occurring here. Yeah, yeah. 
Like I said, the judge on the case made the following statement when he made the sentencing of Benjamin Train. He said, quote, It was a very difficult decision. I did take into account your family very significantly. Benjamin Train had a wife and children at the time. Mm. And he said, I just wish you had. Ooh. Right, that's shade. Sassy, I like it. <laughs> the judge went on to say, It is of the utmost serious nature. Your acts against very troubled and vulnerable young people one that merits very serious consequences. This is done while they trusted you and were totally reliant on you. This is something that cannot be tolerated. This judge fucking was dead serious. Yeah, I appreciate that. The strength of that stance very much. He went hard. Because he went so hard, I think we've talked about this with Delphi, um... (laughs) Train used that as a source of his appeal. Mm -hmm. That, oh, the judge was so against me from the very beginning. There's Mm -hmm. no way I could have gotten a fair blah, blah, blah. This was not a fair shake. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Benjamin Train has twice appealed his decision. I will note he has not served a day in prison since this 2017 ruling because he has been out while he files his appeals. Wow. Don't sue me, please. (laughs) Train has twice appealed this decision, claiming his innocence, once in 2001, and once literally just a few years ago, the decision, or just a few weeks ago, I'm tired, Mm. the decision came down on January 6, 2023. Oh. Both appeals upheld the 2017 convictions. Mm. So while his convictions continue to be appealed, Train has yet to serve a single day in prison. Meanwhile, the victims of the troubled teen industry continue to be sent to these schools. KS, I hope, has found appropriate treatment from an actual therapist. She continues to present at these appeals. She continues to be required to tell her story. Mm. She continues to be required to talk about her trauma, which can only be re-traumatizing each time that she experiences it. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate her strength. So that is the very roundabout story of KS and Midwest Academy and the troubled teen industry. I apologize that it was not more specifically focused on a single victim or story, but I really, really wanted to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, I think the the reality is that, like, there's an entire system of these things, and they're all, you know, complicit in some way in probably, at the very least, ineffective treatment of kids that need a lot of assistance, and at worst, stuff like this, right? So... At the very least, it's ineffective. And I think even, like, the most level of the road this is can you kind of get the feel that like um ks's story is probably a lot of people's story right that you know this is Mm -hmm. her story is representative of of a much broader movement here and i think that's kind of one of the reasons why i really wanted to tell this story although there is not a ton of detail although there is not a ton of like i feel like i started it and ended it and there wasn't much in between I don't know about KS's life. Mm -hmm. I don't know the ins and outs of all of her experiences, the ins and outs of her 
relationship with train and at the end of the day to be completely honest i don't think that any of that matters Mm -mm. because she was a teenager that was put into what her parents believed was therapy Mm -hmm. and was sexually abused and exploited yeah and that fact of the case has been upheld by the court three times yeah so if there is any hate, if there is any disagreement from defenders of Midwest Academy or our perpetrators here, the fact is it has been held up in court three times. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, it seems to me too that like the, there's no arguing the fact of the, like the wrongful imprisonment, the solitary confinement situations, like these things, like the very least that's, that's all verifiable as well. And criminal Mm -hmm. yeah and this happens every single day at these tti programs Hmm. so do you want to tell people what they can do what can you actually do one if you have a teenager or a kid in your life that you want to get help for whatever program you choose wherever therapist you're with Check their alphabet soup. They should have some kind of PsyD or PhD or LMSW or LCPC at the end of their name. If they do not have that, run away. Mm-hmm. There are lots of different alphabet soups that change from state to state. So I understand that that can be confusing. But make sure that they are a licensed professional in their field. Whoever is running that program should have credentials. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, whatever, if you are looking into a facility for a residential, a hospitalization, they should be certified by a regional agency like right here. It's um, JACO, J-A-C-H-O. I believe it's like that. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what they do is they make sure that things are safe for the people that are there, that they are at least the minimum standards of protections for bathrooms, housing. Um, these kids have a place to sleep, that sort of thing. Feel free to interview people. If you... S- are thinking about a residential or a boarding school program and they are using punishment, that is an ineffective program. Mm -hmm. And if they're cagey about what they do, Mm -hmm. right? If they don't want to disclose what they do, if they ask you to not disclose what they do, that to me would seem like a major red flag. Yeah, if they're asking you to sign any level of an NDA, if they're asking you to say to not disclose what is happening in the program, That is something to question. Mm -hmm. I had another thought and I completely lost it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's late. We're tired. I do think this I do think this stuff is important. I do. It is. It is. I I care a lot that if a kid is struggling, a a kid is struggling. Yeah. And that means that they need real treatment. They don't need to be fucking yelled at and thrown into solitary. Mm Mm-hmm. Ask what consequences look like at the school. Ask about social-emotional learning programs Mm -hmm. and how they use trauma-informed treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And really, like, I think if anything, 
seems unclear or if there's like a hesitance or reticence to provide those details, there's a reason. Yeah. If they're using scare tactics to get you on board, run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they shouldn't have to. If they know what they're doing, they don't have to scare you. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So (sighs) that that was delightful. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you want to talk about next week? Yeah, probably sure. be equally de- delightful. Yeah, so next week we're going to be in Michigan. We are going to be looking at the case of the missing Skelton brothers uh, out of Morrissey, Michigan. I've been wanting to talk about this case for forever. Yeah, we're going for it. We um, what we have is three missing boys, uh, ages nine, seven, and five, all brothers. Uh, last seen with their father on Thanksgiving and I want to say it was 2010 yeah 2010 and there are some very interesting and intriguing and um, mysterious circumstances surrounding many many people in these boys lives particularly their father and the people that he associated with who I think warrant a very serious examination when we look at this mysterious disappearance of these boys I'm excited. I know a bit about this case, so I'm really excited to talk about it because I have so many questions. Good. I will try to answer them. So, yeah, come back for that, friends. Uh, We're tired and we're old, so we're going to keep our sign-off here short and sweet, I think. Hey, Um, I've lost my voice at this point. Yeah, we love you. So and you should probably eat cheese. I forget what yeah. our sign off even is. At and this be point. good. Uh, you know, I am. I've gotten like four hours of sleep, if that. And yeah, I'm dying. So uh, we love you and be good and eat cheese and talk to us on socials and check come the back credentials next time. of your providers. Yep. Uh, make phone calls. Do what you gotta do. Yeah. Yeah. Most importantly, get sleep, though, because you can't do any of those things on a lack of sleep. Mm-mm. No, ma'am. You sure cannot. <laughs> All right, friends. We will see you next time. Bye, friends. They're not our neighbors anymore. They moved. But like our little eight-year-old that lived next door called me Juicy. Really? Yeah. Which I'm not, just by the way. (laughs) Congratulations. No. (laughs) You are many things, beautiful in many ways. Juicy, not so much. Your husband, Juicy. Juicy. My husband is Juicy. Yeah. I think they got the, they got their compliments mixed up, maybe. (laughs) You're an Amazonian goddess. That's what they should have called you.